0: Hello, America, and welcome to a new edition of John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Yeah, you know about us. You've been listening to us. In fact, we're closing in on a million listeners. I'm so grateful for everyone who is tuning in and trying to help us make this show a success and, and to give us good ideas for guests and for news. We're very, very appreciative. And today, we hope we deliver on that promise once again. Two big things. One, last night, we broke the story first here at Just the News, the new documents released by the Justice Department to a court in the Michael Flynn case. Yes, I'm not making this up. An FBI official, a senior FBI official, actually wrote he thought his agency might be, quote, playing games and instead of trying to resolve an issue in a criminal case, instead find a way to get Michael Flynn to lie so that he could be, quote, prosecuted or get him fired, close quote, Um these are not the things that FBI agents should be writing about if they're not playing politics, if they're sticking to the law on their job. We're going to talk about that. And then we have an extraordinary interview with Rep. Andy Biggs, the congressman from Arizona, the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, the, con- the most conservative caucus in Congress, and a member of President Trump's uh, task force to help reopen America after the coronavirus pandemic. Congressman Biggs has lots to say about the FBI about the uh, coronavirus, about the economy. You're going to want to buckle up, and the election, too. He talks about the election. You're going to want to buckle up. This is a fun one, uh, and we're going to be right back and get right into things right after this commercial break. Stick with us. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Remember, please support our great sponsors, our great advertisers, the people that make this show and just the news possible. We're so grateful to what they do every day for us, and uh, they allow us to connect with you and to deliver the sort of news that you can't get anywhere else. We're so, so grateful for it. All right, we have some big news for you that we want to share. Late last night, the Justice Department finally turned over the secret evidence and made public the secret evidence that they belatedly provided Michael Flynn's lawyer, Sidney Powell. If you remember, we had Sidney Powell on this show just a few weeks ago, and if you remember what she said, she said, I think the FBI engaged in an effort to trick my client into lying, to set him up, to frame him, and uh, sure as heck last night, the FBI, three years after the case began, belatedly turned over what is known as Brady evidence, that is, evidence of innocence, potential evidence of innocence, to the uh, court overseeing Michael Flynn's case. Remember, Flynn is seeking to vacate his guilty plea and his conviction, Uh, and here is what we found out. A senior FBI official, my sources tell me his name is Bill Priestap, the former counterintelligence chief for the FBI, Pete Strzok's boss, if you want to get a sense of where he was in the pecking order. Well, he took written notes in January 2017, right at the beginning of the Trump administration, right as the FBI was going To interview Michael Flynn, if you remember, that's the interview that um, uh, Sidney Powell says her client got sandbagged, that James Comey bragged they were trying to trick and Flynn trying to uh, pull a fast one on the White House and get Flynn interviewed before the White House counsel knew. But let's go to what he wrote in his notes, because what these notes show, if it is Bill Priestoff, whoever the FBI official is, senior FBI official what we see in his notes is an FBI supervisor who is very uncomfortable with the discussions he's been involved with. These were meetings and discussions about how they were going to approach Flynn, how they were going to do the interview. And I'm just going to read in in, in order uh, order exactly what Priestap wrote in his notes. First line: interview. I agreed yesterday that we shouldn't show Flynn redacted. I'm told that word is the transcript, meaning his. Transcript of his infamous call with the Russian ambassador, Sergei Kislak. Uh, So we agreed that we shouldn't show Flynn the transcript if he didn't admit, meaning admit to what he had said. I thought about it last night. I believe we should rethink this. Well, he has some doubt about the strategy that he and his bosses have come up with. And here is the money quote. Just listen to this and imagine an FBI agent in the middle of a criminal case having to write this to himself in his notes. What is our goal? Question mark. Truth admission. Do we get the truth? Or to get him to lie so we can prosecute him or get him fired. Unbelievable. What, what role is the work of the FBI in getting someone fired? That's not its job. Its job is to investigate crimes and solve cases. He further goes on. He's clearly struggling with this idea that they weren't going to show Flynn the transcript, something that they would normally do for other interview subjects. Quote, we regularly show subjects evidence with the goal of getting them to admit their wrongdoing. I don't see how getting someone to admit their wrongdoing is going easy on him. If we get him to admit to breaking the Logan Act, give facts to DOJ, have them decide, or if he initially lies, then we present him with the transcript. If he admits it, document it for DOJ and let them decide how to address it. All right, now, here's the last set of notes. If we're seen as playing games, White House will be furious. Protect our institution by not playing games. All right, let me put that in some context. This, a senior FBI official, the head of counterintelligence, the boss of Pete Strzok, someone who reported up to James Comey and, and Andrew McCabe inside the FBI at this critical time, the very first few days, four days into the Trump administration, Is wrestling with the idea that the gang, the cabal, the FBI leadership had come up with a strategy that he thought risked the institution's reputation by quote playing games. And what was that strategy? Well, there are other documents that explain part of what it is. Well, we know one thing is they didn't want to show him the transcript. They didn't want to refresh Flynn's memory. They were they were as he said might have been trying to just get him to lie, quote get him to lie so that we can prosecute him or get him fired. So that's one thing, right? Uh one many of our many of the critics of the FBI would call this a perjury trap an entrapment scheme by the FBI, not following as as this uh, officer official writes in his uh docs, a normal process is we regularly show subjects this stuff. So that's one part of the setup if you understand where um Uh, the Flynn legal team is going. But earlier, there's a series of emails between Strzok and um, Lisa Page. That's his girlfriend, but also the senior lawyer in the FBI. Strzok was the lead counterintelligence agent reporting up to pre stap on on the Russia investigation that we know as Crossfire Hurricane. There's another debate that they're having, and in addition to not showing him the transcript, they want to know whether they really have to tell Mike Flynn that under this interview, if he lies, he could uh, face a 1001 perjury charge or lying charge to the FBI. Now, normally, uh, the FBI always gives that warning to someone who might in, be in jeopardy. It's a constitutional protection. I'm just going to read you Lisa Page's uh, email. Uh, Struck is on it. It goes to some other people. And she's asking, do we really have to do this? It's just worth reading it for what it is. I have a question for you. Could the admonition Ray, ray 1001, so the warning about the 1,000 perjury charge, be given at the beginning of the at the interview, or does it have to come following a statement, which agents believe to be false? Does the sp- policy speak to that? And then she says she feels bad. She doesn't know the answer. It seems to be if the former, then it would be an easy way to just casually slip that in. Of course, yes, you know, sir, federal law makes it a crime, blah, blah, blah. And that's where she ends her email. And then uh, later on, someone writes back, I haven't read the policy. I'll check it tomorrow. I'm 90% sure that you can do it any way you want. But think of the word they're using here. These words matter. Instead of giving someone an overt constitutional warning protection, hey, if you lie to us, you might get uh, charged, she's talking about, quote, casually slip that in. They weren't trying to help Mike Flynn. They weren't trying to treat him like every other citizen, like most of the other interview subjects, as as Pete, uh, as um, Bill Priestaps note noted. They were trying to pull a fast one on Flynn and hope—again, these are not my words. These are the words of the written notes—possibly hope the goal would be to, quote, get him to lie so we can prosecute him or get him fired. This is not what the FBI should be doing. In fact, it is a lot worse. And— These notes now emerging at this point in the investigation. First, there are serious questions how it could be that the FBI under Christopher Wray, James Comey's uh, successor, could have withheld these notes from the Flynn team all this time. Either the FBI or the Justice Department did something here that's inappropriate. These are clearly what are known as Brady materials. That's why they've now belatedly been turned over. It appears that these records were only found and only turned over because Attorney General Barr has named a special prosecutor to look at the conduct of the FBI and the Justice Department in the Flynn case. Now we know why they're looking at it. There are words like this on paper. These are smoking gun words, important words, words we don't want our FBI to be uttering or thinking when they're doing an investigation, and they're supposed to be blind justice, treating everybody the same. Now I'm going to mention a couple of things as we wrap because I want to get you right away to Congressman Biggs. That interview is just an enjoyable. When you're going to learn a lot and about China, Russia, uh, the election, and how we get America back on its feet. But let's just finish this up and, and uh, give a couple thoughts here. There is a special prosecutor who is looking into the conduct of the FBI and the Justice Department. The sudden emergence of these notes suggests that they may have now, for the first time, a cooperating witness in the investigation, somebody who produced notes or led them to notes that should have been given to the court long ago. Let's keep an eye on this. I think there are going to be major developments in the criminal investigations, both by Durham and by the other special prosecutor who's looking specifically only at the Flynn case. But as we go to commercial break and we're thinking about it, I'm going to tell you a little story. It was back in the fall of 17, my good friend Sarah Carter and I were breaking a lot of stories and beginning the, the reporting that ultimately unraveled the Russia collusion narrative. And it was during that time, I think it was in the summer, maybe early fall of 17, we got approached by an intermediary for a senior FBI official. And their story was, and it's a dramatic story, their story was uh, there is some evidence inside the Justice Department and the FBI that Flynn was set up, that FBI agents did not believe he lied, that uh, they may have tried to make it look like he lied in ways that they would not have treated another defendant. And uh, one or more of these FBI officials were considering coming forward, either in the media or through a whistleblower complaint. That never materialized. But as I look back now and we see these notes, uh, we now understand why some of those officials might have been approaching us back in the summer and fall of 2017, because there was a debate, a concern. When someone as high as Bill Priestop is writing in his notes, what is our goal, truth, admission, or to get him to lie so we can prosecute him or get him fired? And let's protect our institution by not playing games something was very rotten inside the FBI, something smelled, something that goes against the core of our American justice system. We don't cheat in the justice system. We don't try to set up people. We try to administer the law blindly uh, and equally. And these notes raise a very serious question about whether that really went on in the Russia case in general and in the Flynn case specifically. Now, a little bit more news as we go to commercial break. I am told another round of Exclusive, big, important, shocking documents Are going to come out tomorrow As early as tomorrow More evidence in the uh, Flynn case That could be very, very concerning And build on these revelations that came out last night That we first reported on just the news last night So stay tuned And then in the meantime, get ready We're going to go to commercial break Support those sponsors when we come back Congressman Andy Biggs With a lot to say about all the big news of the day All right, folks. Welcome back from the commercial break. And as promised, we've got a very special guest, Congressman Andy Biggs of Arizona, the chairman of the Conservative Freedom Caucus in the House, and now a new member of President Trump's task force to reopen the economy after the coronavirus. Congressman, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Always good to be with you. And you as well. Thank you for taking the time. So um, this is a big announcement that came out uh, just a couple of weeks ago. You're you're on the task force now that President Trump has picked to help us recover from the coronavirus, get this economy back online. Uh, what are your first impressions of the efforts uh, to, to reopen the economy and get America back to life as normal?
1: Well, I think they're sincere, but I think we're a little bit slow. And I, 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 I love what Governor DeSantis was saying yesterday. I I like the governors that are opening up. I do think the president's right on the money where he says it's up to the governors. Governors have to be the ones who who make these decisions. Um, but uh, too many governors are taking too much time, in my opinion.
0: And the um, as you look out, what what do you think of the science advice around the president? The Dr. Birx's, the Dr. Fauci's. Um, you've been critical, I think, a little bit about their hold on this whole process. Do you? Uh, do you? What's your thinking as it as you've watched them in action? Well, you
1: know, I. I think it's past time for them to kind of uh, leave the policy making uh, stage. The reality is uh, several weeks ago in a in a conversation in a conference call, Dr. Fauci admitted that he hadn't taken into account societal factors or um, economic factors when he developed the policies that we've been following and the guidelines they've been issuing. And that's a problem because, uh, John, as you know this, when you put twenty seven million Americans out of work and probably pushing thirty million by the end of this week uh there's a lot of problems of mental health physical health uh and social health uh that that get called into question uh just because of the increase of uh, of the poverty the the uh, loss of health insurance the fear that's out there that uh, the, dr Fauci and Burks have have um, basically fueled. And, and so I have some real criticism for them, uh, and their policy making. Uh, it's not necessarily for them personally. I don't know them personally, but their policy making has really, I think been a real problem.
0: And in the call they, they said they, they, that Dr. Fauci hadn't really thought about the economic, psychological, and social effects of these, uh, scientific decisions he was making. That's a pretty big admission.
1: Yeah. I, I, I was actually stunned by that. Um, but I thought it was forthright, And I thought it was, you know, the more I uh, I thought about it, I thought, you know, he was being totally honest, I think. And so I appreciate that. And I also think that that would be the approach that you would have if you were coming from the background that he was coming from. But I think when we look at it as as a member of the task force and someone who's, you know, a policymaker, we have to take more of a totality of the circumstances uh, 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 point of view. And I just feel like uh, and have thought for quite some time that, that we have failed to take that into account because, uh, the, just the mental stress of losing a job is, is enormous. Then you throw in the, the emotional stress that people have when they're, they're kind of locked away together. And, and I just think these policies produce some wacky inconsistencies, uh,
0: in, in our society as well. Now, as you as you dig into the work of the task force, what are some of the good ideas you're hearing about how we get things roaring, how we get the economy and jobs back, small businesses back on their feet? Um are, are some ideas you brought to the table and others have brought that you're you're getting fond of?
1: Well, I I think the first thing you gotta do is is you gotta um you you have to encourage businesses to come back and and then be responsible. I the first thing I always say is you gotta trust the American people. I trust the American people. Uh, they're creative. They're uh, ingenious. Uh, they don't want to to spread a public health uh, uh, hazard, but they also want to work. And they want to get out, and you have to respect those freedoms. So the first thing is to is to grant uh, 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 recognize the freedoms. We don't grant the freedoms, but to recognize the freedoms. But but then there's a whole host of things that that uh, I've I've been trying to forward through everything from uh, tax uh, uh, rate decreases to uh, incentives, to technical tax uh, reform, to regulatory reform, um, elimination of, of some of the, the regulations that have been so detrimental uh, to businesses. And and also, to one of the things we have to put in place, and I've introduced <laughs> legislation to do this, is, is a liability uh, uh, protection provision because uh, there, you already have California trial lawyers sniffing around Arizona See if there's a way to, to bring some uh, class action lawsuits over here,
0: you're kidding, really? They're
2: in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic? Yes, that's it, that's right. You got it.
0: Wow, well, that brings a whole new meaning to ambulance chasing, I guess. Wow, the um, well, let me ask you this you, uh, you've been a champion of privacy, and whether it's in the Russia case with Carter Page or in, in the, the big uh, Google Facebook world we live in. Uh, one of the strategies that scientists advocate for here is contact tracing. And I wonder if you, you know, how are you going to balance that personal liberty issue with you know, the public society issue of trying to find people quickly who might have the virus and can spread it?
1: Well, you know, uh, the first thing is is you can't allow the big tech companies to, to actually be involved. Yeah, you, you've probably seen some of the stories. We know this already and some of the hearings of judiciary as far back as uh, two, three years ago. We know that. That your phone is being used to to track you for a myriad of things by by these uh, big tech companies. So you have to push them out, find out where their contracts are, and you can't let them use their technology in the United States the way they've been using it in China, where they've been uh, tr- uh, tracing people and then providing that information to the government and making those access uh, accessible to to the government there. So you got to watch that. Uh, the second thing is where where you allow contact tracing. There's consent, typically, and what's going to happen is it, you're, it's originating with a medical doctor, and this is where we we actually have this in place in some uh, most of the country already. Where, you know, if you have a, a disease like I had, I had whooping cough one time as an adult, and they quarantined me, and they asked me who was in con- who I was in contact with, in whatever it was, and I, I said this is who I was in contact with. I gave my consent, uh, and uh, because we did, I didn't want anybody else to get sick. You have got to narrow it so closely um, uh, if you're going to have any contact tracing. And I and get very nervous about it because contact tracing is already being uh, hailed by, by the left um, as something that should be broadly implemented. And I think it's something we should all be uh, scrutinizing and very dubious about.
0: It's um, the next few months are going to uh, challenge a lot of our uh, our tolerances for the the balance between liberty and and safety, and it's going to be an interesting time. Um, another tolerance level clearly is going to be just how much money we have spent, and I know there was an immediate need to just keep the economy afloat. But as you look out, as someone who oversees the Freedom Caucus and has been a champion of keeping government small, what has the coronavirus taught us about you know the capabilities of our very big government, and also uh, what we may need to do to tighten up spending now that we put so much cash on the street to, to keep us afloat during this critical time?
1: Well, John, what I would say is if we had managed our our um, budget and had no deficit and no national debt or very little national debt at the time this came into place, I think we would have been much more nimble and able to address some of these issues more uh, more quickly and uh, more efficiently. I, I think what most Americans don't realize is we've just added $4 trillion of structural deficit for this fiscal year. And, and that's assuming we don't spend any more money, which we'll probably spend another 2 to $4 trillion between here and September 30th. You you will end up with having at least a $6 trillion dollar, dollar structural deficit. Add that to your national debt of somewhere around $23 trillion today. You're going to be sitting at about 28 to $30 trillion just by September 30th of this year. That is uh, irresponsible in, in a way that it, it's almost an, impossible to say. So if we want to be uh, able to take care of these uh, emergencies and disasters, the best way to do it would be to manage our own uh, budget at the federal level. And then you're you're in a position to handle anomalous situations. We're not there. And so we're going to have to really, really buckle down and, and, and look at this uh, much more. With a much more, um, focused lens. Uh, because so that's where this, that's where this disaster relief is we're equating this with the disaster relief. That's where we should be doing. We should be focusing all of the relief packages out of the feds. But we've just encumbered, um, the next generation or two because I don't know how you get a, over 30 plus trillion dollars in national debt at the same time that your, that your national economy is contracting by almost 5% in the first quarter of this year.
2: It is a staggering number, and it's just one we're not thinking about because we're just trying to get to the moment, but uh, $30 trillion is is uh, uh, really getting past the size of an annual GDP of the U.S. uh, economy, which has always been the tipping point for many economists worried about sustainability. Yes, that's right. Well, and so, John, you get to the point where you have uh, a potential
1: uh, uh, sovereign debt crisis, and that is to say – you have a, a potential to be somewhere with a gross national debt versus your gross domestic product uh, ratio. Something uh, where your debt's about 112 percent of your uh, GDP. That's a real danger. Uh, that's a tipping point. And um, you know, you have you have some nations have actually gone through almost a bankruptcy uh, because of that. And and we're fortunate because ours is the international uh, currency of exchange. And uh, that's
0: important too. Well, it is remarkable, and and uh, we are getting close to that tipping point. I think um, it may have been CBO, but one of the one of the nonpartisan agencies put out a warning saying it's it's a year closer. It could happen in the next twelve months that we reach that that one hundred twelve percent tipping point that makes economists and debt bond raiders uh, very concerned. So something to keep an eye on. The um, as we look out in uh, the restart where will we be or where should we be and I don't want to say that use a crystal ball but where should we be in July what 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 should america look like in july
1: um well, by the time july comes um you should have most of the states should be open uh, all the way i think you're going to still see some uh, very uh, real concern about you know having a, a baseball stadium filled with twenty five, thirty five thousand 35,000 people Although you can you can do that in social distance there, uh, I think you'll start seeing us return to some st- st- closer to normalcy than than um, than some people are projecting right now. But I think we can and we should and and that that's, if you want to get your economy back you got to open it and um, I think you'll see a restoration. I I think that you won't be fully normal normalized yet. Uh, I don't think. They should cancel some of the, the sporting seasons in the fall. I think they should plan on finding a way to uh, to open those up and and involve America and restore the morale. I think there's a lot of a low morale right now, and um, I also hope that there's additional scientific data and um, rationality that comes out between now and uh, the the end of May as well, John. I think that would really be helpful. In, in providing uh, uh, people with that hope. Right now, there's there's this kind of despair. There's a uh, kind of lack of faith. Um, but I do sense a tremendous energy right now, certainly in Arizona there is, for people who want to get out, get open, and, and get things going. And I think that is really positive. So I think we're going to be in pretty, pretty um, probably about 70% normal normalcy by July, I would hope.
0: Uh, That's good to hear. I know a lot of people are waiting to hear those sort of signs. You talked about some need to get some better science signals as to what's going on. Is part of that understanding that this virus may be more widespread and that there might have been a lot more people who have immunity because they were asymptomatic or low symptomatic? Is that something that you think we'll learn more about over the next few weeks?
1: Yeah, John, I think that's that's critical. I mean, some of the data I've been seeing, and, and I check data every day, and I talk to medical professionals every day. Um, what we're seeing is kind of a, a, a broader that, that the that the virus spread broader through the community, through the nation. And what that does is that that uh, lowers the the case fatality rate significantly, because the the death rate still remains the same. Although uh, even even how we coded some people has has been called into question by how Dr. Burke suggested that it, if they have symptoms, you should code it COVID, even if the COVID isn't the, uh, the cause of the disease. And, and other states have been doing the same thing, coding it that way. So that's problematic. But once you get the true codes in place, once you have uh, a, a better understanding how uh, broad this is, you can actually put this in a proper context, uh, which we're not seeing right now. And uh, I mean, there's some great case side by side studies of uh, of reactions to this, like in Sweden, Norway. That's those are great side by side. Right, I think, yeah. I mean, just you know, Sweden stayed open, Norway closed fairly close to to all the all the ratios. Um, that, so there was no. Uh, in other words, Norway didn't receive a significant benefit by closing up, but their economy tanked. Sweden's economy stayed strong. I look at Taiwan. That's an interesting case study, just 80 miles off of China, more than 3 million visitors from China a year. And they, uh, my last check, which is about four or five days ago, they were still at below 500 uh, overall COVID cases and uh, below five as far as uh, uh, case uh, fatality rate. And it's because of what they did and they stayed open. But what they did is they actually closed off uh, uh Folks coming into the islands. The fact that it's an island may have been uh, helpful, but it's really a con- it's still a very congested island, as you know. And so, I mean, there's some some great data that we're going to be seeing, and it's already coming out. Some great studies coming out on Italy, uh, on on the Sweden Norway comparison. USA has done some good studies. So so we're starting to see these these studies that are that are going to give us more information, help us uh, put things in, in context and perspective
0: yeah that's going to be encouraging and I, it's funny one of the most popular stories on com this week was the sweden story the us ambassador to sweden gave an interview sunday to npr and they and they talked about their herd immunity that they're 35 40% with very low uh, uh serious cases and deaths and that um, they may be the best case study to show that some of the restrictions we put in place were were uh, counterproductive or certainly not as necessary as we all thought so i think people will be looking at that sweden Um, example and studying it uh, in the in the months ahead. When you when one of the things as a conservative Republican that you are, um, you look at agencies in government, of course, you believe in smaller government, that's one of the foundations of the, the Freedom Caucus. When we look at these big science agencies, the NIH, the CDC, and we see how they dropped the ball on getting testing done, there were some hiccups inside the bureaucracy. And then you see the president go out to the private sector and all of a sudden testing picks up and we have better solutions than we had. Is there a learning moment for our country to uh, look at the capabilities of some of these very big science agencies that we created?
1: Yeah, John, I, I actually think this is a tremendous crossroads that we're at. Um, you, the responses of this. You've seen some people want to respond with let's centralize everything. That uh, this the didn't work well because we we had too little government. We didn't have enough centralization in the government, not enough bureaucracy. That's what some folks are saying. Uh, but other people saying, you know, what the administration did, they, as, as you say, they reduced regulations. They freed up regulations. They went to to the private sector to develop everything from uh, the the 95 mask to to PPE to testing. And you saw an immediate response because the market responds to these incentives. The regulatory and tax structure that we have in place actually too often uh, kills those in- incentives for, uh, that would make private entrepreneurs in science, et cetera, come forward. I also think that the that uh, just like any other bureaucracy, the, the science bureaucracies, uh, they get wrapped up in uh, just the bureau- bureaucratic morass. Uh, that that you see there that it's it, that produces stasis rather than innovation and and uh, nimble thinking, and so I I think we're at a crossroads. I I'm hoping that that the American people uh, will not acquiesce to um, centralization, but would uh, acquiesce to decentralization.
2: Yeah, that's
0: going to be one of the great debates as we look back, and you know there are moments where you see. Um the, the the big science agencies giving us conflicting advice, wear a mask, don't wear a mask, wear a mask, um, uh, 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 go go on a cruise, don't go on a cruise, go on a cruise, don't go on a cruise. And uh, we we did some of that reporting and it, it kind of shows that for all the money, the billions we put into these agencies, they didn't know any much, much more than we knew about the virus when it all started. And um, that private sector, that private sector seems to have come in and helped us out a lot. Um, I know you only have a few more minutes. I want to turn to another one of our favorite topics and something that you've been an eloquent voice on, and that is the FBI-Russia collusion case and all of the extraordinary revelations just in the last two weeks alone. Um, where do you think we stand in understanding what the FBI-CIA did in the Russia case? And what's your expectation for accountability as we go forward?
1: Well, first of all, John, I want to thank you for your leadership on this. You've been just a, a strong voice from from the very early beginnings uh, at as, as exposing the abuses of uh, our intelligence apparatus. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm just so grateful to you for what you've done. Well, thank you. When we start looking at what's come out lately in the last, I mean, going back to the Inspector General's report, um, everything from the Pfizer revelations that he does a, a sample of 42 cases and every one of them had abuses in it, every one. That that should get, there should immediately uh, FBI Director Christopher Ray should immediately uh, come out and said, oh, we need to come, we we need to straighten this out, we need to be more transparent and let's let's investigate with Congress. He didn't do that. He, uh, I've had requests in uh, probably a year and a half or so on various items and still have received nothing. So when you ask me, do I think there's going to be accountability? And 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 everything from the Christopher Steele revelations recently uh, that we see, I, I'm not seeing movement in that direction, and that concerns the heck out of me. Because um, if we're going to clean this up, there's got to be some uh, indictments. There's got to be some uh, some people held truly accountable for their abuse of of the uh, the fight everything from the FISA courts to everything in the intelligence apparatus that was abused. I am really concerned because I haven't seen it yet I, and I've been told, and you have to, uh, wait for this report or wait for this report or it's going to happen soon and it's going to happen soon. And you know what? I feel like uh, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for Godot is what's happening.
0: That was the book I was thinking of as you said it. <laughs> it, does, it does feel that way. And, um it it is remarkable the um is chris ray the right guy at the right moment at this time in the fbi are you happy with his leadership uh, unhappy with his leadership at the bureau
1: i have been unhappy i i i've been you know i th- i have felt that he has not been transparent i have, you know, i have felt that he hasn't held people accountable and i have felt that he's been more protection more protectionist than um reconstructionist and i think so much of the leadership there needs to be reconstructed uh, and their message need to be reconstructed, and so I've been very frustrated and unhappy.
0: Yeah, I've uh, talked to a lot of colleagues in, uh, in in Congress who have your colleagues who feel the same way, and um, it'll be interesting to see now with these new revelations that are about to come out in the Flynn case, and and the stuff we just learned the other day in the in the Steele deposition that um, whether whether he can react. Uh, I want to ask you about that. We have a story up on the site uh, today, Chris Steele in the. Um, A British case, a a lawsuit in Britain, testified that uh, he was told and assured that Hillary Clinton knew about uh, his work starting in July of 2016, so very early on. Two, he had a set of notes that he took of his conversations with the FBI where he told the FBI this is Hillary Clinton's operation, and that three, when he uh, he began talking to the State Department, he was led to believe that Susan Rice, President Obama's national security advisor— uh, uh, was in the know and read in on what Steele was up to. When you hear those sort of things, and we, you know, we, we keep learning things about Christopher Steele all the time. But do, are you concerned that some of these reviews of the investigators haven't gone high enough? They haven't reached into the Obama White House or to direct uh, to directly to Secretary Clinton
1: yet. Yeah, I mean, uh, first of all, I always take what Christopher Steele says with some, you know, some skepticism. Um, so I really want to read his transcript. Yeah, but, but I mean, I think folks like you, folks like me, we've, we've speculated mostly in private that somehow it would be impossible for Secretary Clinton not to have known. Um, and same with, 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 uh, Susan Rice, which meant that most likely, uh, President Obama had received, not, uh, some, maybe a briefing on this some way. And the fact that Steele's saying that, that, uh, that the FBI was was briefed on this and state was briefed on this that that tells you uh how how bad this was and, we said, and that there's there's so much underneath the the surface of the ocean of that iceberg that we haven't even seen yet and that's part of when you get back to Christopher Ray that's part of my frustration I've had access to 502s that I I have asked for oh gosh a good year Year or so, and I know others have too. That they would uh, declassify those, and I keep telling, oh yeah, they're in the process, and they never declassified. They've got to be declassified. More has got to be declassified for the American people to understand uh, why why big government, why uh, closed secret um, courts and processes are dangerous to the republic. They've got to see this. So that's that's just
2: a broad over overview of my concern here. Yeah, no, there's there's no doubt. And you, you, you've you spoken so eloquently of this and been such an important player in, in driving toward getting the truth to the American public. Fortunately, we know a lot more truth now, but I fear there's a lot more to come that we have to keep digging out. So, sir, I want to thank you. I know you got to run, but thank you for taking so much time here today. And uh, we wish you luck. And you know, you've got a lot of work ahead of you on that task force. So best of luck, and we hope to talk to you soon. Thanks, John. Thanks for all the work you're doing. You're doing great. Thank you, sir. All right, folks, we'll be back right after the commercial break.
0: All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports. Thanks for sticking with us and enjoying the interview with Congressman Andy Biggs and our discussion of the Michael Flynn case. Keep in mind, tomorrow more big documents will probably be coming out. We'll probably have another special edition of the podcast. So hang on. We'll be back soon. Uh, Thanks again for listening.